On an average day, how do you think Jesus feels about you? I asked that question, and I think it's an important question, because almost every Christian I have ever asked it to gives the same answer. And the answer is, he, he's probably disappointed with me. Almost everybody feels that way. And so if you feel that way, then you aren't the only one. And in fact, I can see how we would feel that way, right? For some of us, it's, I came to Christ 10, 20 years ago. And when I did, I figured in about two years, I would probably have gotten this far along in my faith. And now it's been 5, 10, 20 years, and I'm not even that far along yet, right? He must be so disappointed with how slowly I have developed with that time when I fell back into sin. He must be so disappointed with my progress. And the hard thing we're dealing with today that I think the Lord means to speak truth into is that the Christian life is full of discouraging and doubt-filled thoughts like that. We will be thinking things like that until we go home to glory and the Lord takes us into his arms to assure us once and forever. But until then, we'll be asking ourselves, what does he really think of me? Am I really a believer? Am I going to make it all the way to the end with all of the sin that I am entangled in? And all of those doubt-filled, discouraging questions that we hold in our heart and often don't share with anybody, I think the Lord means to speak an encouraging word to every one of them this morning. So what I've been praying for is that every believer in this room would find an encouraging, a refreshing, even a reviving answer to those doubt and discouragement-filled questions that we ask about our faith. If you're just joining us, we are toward the end of the last major section of the book of Genesis. This is the story of Joseph and his brothers, a story in which one man, Joseph, is made like Jesus in many ways that Christians are made like Jesus. And we have seen him become like Jesus in his suffering, and we've seen him become like Jesus in his exaltation over everyone, and we've seen him become like Jesus in his wisdom. And today we are going to see what I personally think is the most beautiful picture of all. This is a picture into Jesus' very heart for his people. Now of all the things in the universe that we could behold, is there anything more beautiful than Jesus Christ? No, there's not. And so if we get a chance this morning to peer into his heart and know how he truly feels for his people Uh, We are coming close to the sweetest stuff in the whole Bible. And I hope that when you leave this morning, it is that sweet for you. It's been that sweet for me studying it. Uh, The backstory is this. Joseph was one of several brothers. They were all rivals. And the other brothers thought that he was the favorite and they were jealous of him. So they ganged up on him, they abused him, and they sold him into slavery in a foreign land. While he was away, though, he rose to power, and he wound up becoming lord of all of that land. It was the land of Egypt, and now he's in charge. Pharaoh put him in charge of everything. And when a great famine came, his brothers had to go to Egypt to buy grain, and the ruler they had to go before was Joseph. He recognized them, but they didn't recognize him. And so he has been watching to see, have these brothers changed? 
Well, along the way, one of the many surprises is that the brothers have changed. They are no longer the ruthless brothers who would sell someone into slavery like this. Now they're good men, and they've demonstrated this, and the ringleader in the gang, Judah, has now come forward, and in a really climactic moment, the one who once got the idea to sell his own brother into slavery now comes before a ruler and offers himself into slavery to save another of his brothers. And so the question we're on the cusp of now is, how is Joseph going to respond? His brothers have proven that they are changed men. What will this be like for him? So here is the big climactic moment in the story. Here is Genesis 45. I'll read it, and when I'm done, I will say our call and response. I'll say the words of the Lord, and if you would respond, may all flesh tremble. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, and you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth who speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. And then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers had come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. And take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. And you shall eat of the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all of the land of Egypt is yours. 
The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry them, the spirit of their father Jacob revived And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. The words of the Lord, may all flesh tremble. So through Joseph's actions there, the Spirit encourages his people this morning with a peek into the heart of Jesus Christ. The first 15 verses of the story emphasize what you probably felt as we read it, how emotional this moment was for Joseph. Now, in some ways, that's happening just because of the arc of the story. If you're familiar with this thing, if you've ever read it from start to finish, you know we're at the peak of the story now. And so you know it's going to be emotional. You're going to feel some things. Also, we have very plain things in the verses that show us how emotional Joseph was here. In the first verse, we learn that he could not control himself anymore before the people that stood by him. So he finally broke in terms of his emotions. He finally began to cry and weep and couldn't hold the face in front of them anymore. His brother, his brother who had been so wicked before, the brother that sold him into slavery, had now offered himself into slavery in order to save another brother. That was enough to send Joseph over the edge. And so he cries for everyone else to go away because he doesn't want to be around all of the servants and all of the lords and all of the people who are there. He wants to be alone with his brothers. We're already seeing how emotional this is for him. And then in verse 2, he weeps, it says, out loud, So that the Egyptians, now the Egyptians have left, but he is weeping loud enough that the Egyptians hear him, and the house of Pharaoh hears him. So he's weeping out loud. And then finally, in verse 3, he says to them, I'm Joseph, is my father still alive? And they are shocked. They had no idea this ruler that they were dealing with was their brother that they had sold into slavery and never expected to see again. Then for the following verses, he speaks many reassuring words to them that we will come back to. Uh, And then at the end, we get this touching picture in verses 14 and 15. First, he falls upon his brother Benjamin's neck and he, he weeps on his brother And then Benjamin falls upon his neck and weeps upon his neck. Two brothers finally together. 
And then he goes to all of his brothers. He's got, he's got 10 brothers. He goes to all of them. And each of them, he, he kisses every one of them. And then he weeps upon them. And then after that, they talk together. Finally, like, like Adam and God talked in the garden. Finally, brothers talking together. It's a touching picture. It's a picture of a man's heart. And all along the way, we are used to now, Joseph is showing us what Jesus will be like. Genesis taught us in the very beginning, as soon as the plot tension came in in chapter 3, we were told to start watching for a mighty Savior King. Some descendant of Eve would come and would fix it all, right? Destroy sin, destroy death and sorrows and Satan and all the problems. And then the chapters since then have told us what line, what ancestry that mighty Savior would come from. He would come from Abraham and from Abraham's son Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob. And now we have a, in the last chapters a very extended picture of what that mighty Savior will be like. He will be brought low. He will be lifted high. He will be a wise ruler. And now what we're seeing is what is his heart like toward the people that he reconciles with? Is he a begrudging reconciler that says, well, I guess I have to take you back, but still a little jaded about that? No. No, he's a tender man who weeps on the neck of every brother that he has lost and puts his arm around them and kisses them and says, I have back the one that I lost. And so our first point today is that God's anointed one will weep with joy over each one of us. If you want an answer to that first question, how does Jesus feel about me on an average day? There's your answer. The picture of Joseph finally reunited with the one that he lost. Weeping on their necks, kissing each one of them. There, Christian, is how Jesus feels about you. This is a peak emotional moment for Joseph in the story. And it points to especially, I think, two peak moments for Jesus as he is reconciled to his people. Now, through and through in the scriptures, his heart is full of love for his people. But there are two moments for each of us when this peaks. One is at your conversion, when you turn from sin and come to Christ. There's much joy. And then his joy peaks again when he is finally physically reunited with you, either when you die and go home to him or when he returns for you and the two of you get to be together for good. And so I take this as a picture of the joy of Jesus Christ, the tears of joy that he will have when we are each reconciled to him and when we are each finally reunited with him. Let me take those one at a time and then we'll apply it a little bit to our hearts. So Jesus says that he feels tremendous joy and that all of heaven feels tremendous joy when, when one sinner turns and repents. And he is so serious about that. He tells three parables 
in a row about it. So first, there's a shepherd who's got a hundred sheep, and one of those sheep goes astray, right? Some of you are familiar with this. You're not on the lawn. One sheep goes astray. And so he leaves the 99 sheep, and he goes after the one sheep that he's lost because he wants it back. So we're getting a picture of this shepherd cares most about the one he lost. And then when the sheep returns and comes home and the hundred are gathered together again, he calls together his friends and he says, come and rejoice with me. Let's throw a party and a feast for my lost sheep is found. And the point is, as that shepherd gathered all his friends together and threw a party at the returned sheep, so there will be much joy and rejoicing in all of heaven when one sinner turns and, and repents. So, we can picture then the Lord in heaven at your moment of conversion saying, okay, gather every heavenly creature, gather all of the souls that are redeemed that are here with me right now, and we're throwing another feast, everybody, and just put your name right there. This person has turned and come back to me. There's much joy at a party in all of heaven. And then he tells the second one, there's a woman who had a very valuable coin, and she lost it, and so she was searching and Everywhere, searching and searching and searching and searching, and she, she can't find it. And then she finds it. And so she, like the shepherd, calls all of her friends and says, Come, let's have a party. I found my coin that I lost. And he makes the same point. In the same way, there would be much rejoicing in all of heaven when one sinner turns and repents. And then he tells the third one, right? And this one is the longest of them all. There's a son who runs away from home and squanders his father's inheritance on reckless living and winds up at rock bottom and decides to come home and just be a servant in his father's house. But when he's on his way home, he sees in the distance his father is standing there waiting for him to come home. And he comes back and he says, Dad, just let me be a servant in your house. I'm not worthy to be your son. And his father just wraps his arms around him and probably weeps just like Joseph and kisses him just like Joseph did and says, let's throw a party. My son was dead and now he is alive. And in the same way, there will be much rejoicing in heaven. So there you have then from, from the lips of the Lord himself, a picture of his own heart about the moment when each of us turn and receive him and receive his forgiveness. And if you've heard those three stories many times, and if your heart's grown dull to them, well, today you have another picture that you can add to that. Joseph going to each one of his brothers, kissing each one of them, and weeping on each one of their necks. If you can picture those tears of joy, you're getting a glimpse into the heart of your Savior for you when you returned to him. So that's one peak moment for him. But for those of us who are believers here, he's got another one that hasn't come yet. One day, either you will die and you will go home to him, or he will return here for you and for us. Now, Joseph's brothers sinned against him, and that sin didn't just turn them from friends to enemies, it also physically separated. And we talked just a second ago about your day of conversion. That's the day that you went from enemies to friends with God, like Joseph and his brothers do here, enemies to friends again. 
But there is still coming a day when you're physically reunited because that sin physically separated. He's over in Egypt and they're over in Canaan. And for 20 years, he has been alienated from his family. He hasn't got to really see his brothers. And just the sight of them not knowing who he was was painful for him. And he had to leave at one point and and weep over it. And now for the first time in two decades, he's wrapping his arms around his brothers again. And in many ways, that's similar to our situation with Jesus. His Spirit is here with us, but the Father and the Son are up in heaven, and and they're not with us. And so there's a longing in his heart for the day when he is with his bride again. And so Zephaniah speaks of the day when he returns for us. And and how's he going to feel on that day when he returns to be with us again? It says he will rejoice over us with shouts of gladness. And in in another part, Isaiah speaks of that day. And it says he will rejoice over you like like a groom rejoices over a bride. So if you can picture then a really picturesque wedding and the wedding went perfectly and nothing went wrong and then the, the couple went off to their room and everything there went perfectly and nothing went wrong and finally after all of that they're lying together and she is in his arms and he is saying she is finally in my arms. That kind of joy and happiness is what our Lord will feel when he is finally reunited with us and finally reunited with you. And again, if you've heard those pictures before, and a lot of times pictures get stale over time and they don't move you as much as they used to, now, now you've got another one. Now you've got the picture of Joseph kissing every one of his brothers, weeping over every one of his brothers because he is so filled with joy to be reunited with them. A lot of us are excited to get to heaven, aren't we? I hear a lot of us talk about it. And it's for different reasons, right? We're kind of on the scale here. The, the best way to feel about it is to be excited to see Jesus and be with Jesus. That's the best thing about heaven, right, is being with Jesus. And many of you would say that, I cannot wait to be with Jesus. And as we would expect, those of you who are older are generally more excited about it because you can sense it coming, like you sense Christmas coming and you get more excited about it. So those of us that are younger are following in your footsteps and slowly getting excited about it. Some of us, it's because we can't wait to be with Jesus, but some of us, it's more like, well, I can't wait to see a a loved one that, that I lost. And for others, it's more like, well, I'm really tired of our political situation and I just can't wait to get out of here, right? Now, the best way to feel about it is I get to see Jesus because he's the best thing about it. So we're kind of all over the spectrum there, aren't we, on how excited we are? Are we excited for the right reasons? We're a mixed bag. But there's one thing that's true about all of us. He can't wait to see us. No matter where you are, that's how he feels about being reunited with you. And so what you must do, what's upon you right now, is to receive that love and that affection with no doubting. There is no room then for for the insecurity that says, oh, if he knew what I did, he wouldn't feel that way. Uh, There's no room for if he knew what was done to me, he wouldn't feel that way. No, before the glory and splendor of Jesus Christ, when he says with all authority, 
I love you and I am delighted in you. What's upon us is we must believe it and we must receive it. So if you're a believer today, that's the answer I want to give to you. Would you receive that unconditional affection and love from your Savior Jesus as he offers it to you? Now, I have said everything I've said so far to believers in Jesus, and maybe some of you are here and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're considering following him. And what I want you to know is maybe if you've been here before, you've heard the gospel message. Maybe you heard it somewhere else. So maybe you have already heard that, that because God loved the world, he gave his son Jesus and Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life on earth, and he died to pay for the sins of those who would trust him, and he rose from the dead to offer eternal life for those who would trust him, and he's up in heaven ruling the world for the sake of those who would trust him. And maybe you've been called to trust him like this before. You've been called to receive his forgiveness and his salvation. I wonder if you realize that he wants you to receive it. He is not in heaven thinking, well, I guess a promise is a promise. He is in heaven desiring that you would take that even right now. The prophet Ezekiel says about people who are probably more wicked than you, do I desire the perishing of the wicked? No, I don't. I would rather that he would turn and live. And Peter writes that God desires all to be saved. And so that means you. His desire for you is that you would turn and be saved. And he he stands waiting even eagerly with a desire that you will receive it. Now, that's not to say that he isn't angry over your sin also. You can feel more than one thing at the same time. And also not to say that the the day will come when the offer of forgiveness is removed either at your death or at his return and all that remains is just judgment and anger over sin Uh, those things are true and if you will not receive his forgiveness and love then those things are your portion forever but he would rather even right now in this moment see you turn and live. So my call to you, my plea to you this morning, uh, if I thought it would do any good, I'd get on my knees and I'd plead with you, would you turn from sin and, and would you come to Jesus Christ who offers forgiveness with tears of joy to everyone who would receive it? If you would, there would be a party in heaven with your name on it right now because he wants to receive you back. Let me speak also to those of you who have come to Jesus but are, are wayward right now. Uh, if, you know you're not living for him. Uh, I don't speak to those of you in this situation often. I should more. Um, and you're thinking, does he want me back after what I have done? Right? I, I sullied his name by coming to him and then turning away into this other stuff. Does he want me back? If Joseph has been along the way consistently pointing us to Jesus, and now what he is doing is weeping with joy over these brothers that he's reconciled with, you have your answer. 
right? There is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. That's true of conversion, and it's true of when you come back to him from wayward ways. So know that the Lord wants you back, and he will receive you at any moment that you're willing to turn back. In fact, even just turn back to him now. So that's our first point. God's anointed one will weep with joy over each one of us, just like Joseph wept with joy over and kissed every single one of his brothers when he was reconciled to them. For the second point, let's look at the words that Joseph says in between the verses we read before, starting at verse 4 and then all the way to 13. He does many words to reassure them. Now, imagine you're his brothers for a minute. The, The mean Egyptian official who has twice snapped his fingers and thrown you into prison, could do it again whenever he wants to, who could at any moment clap his hands and sentence you to death. This guy, he's not been very nice so far. He looks at you and he says, I am the brother you sold into slavery. That is like shower scene in psycho level scary right? What is he going to do to me? I can just hear the, right? Frightening. And so it makes sense that Joseph knows this, and he knows he needs to reassure them, right? He knows the first thing he needs to tell them is, it's okay. You're not going to die over this. And so he does. In in verse 5, he says to them, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for for God sent me before you to preserve life. And he says essentially the same thing again in verse 8. It was not you who sent me here, it was God. He's made me a father to Pharaoh and, and Lord of all of his house. So twice he is saying, yes, you did that, but God knew what he was doing and God had a plan and all this. And I see that, so I'm not bitter at you about it. He will have to say that to them again later when he says a very famous line that's not coming yet. But then later in verse 24, he has at this point, Pharaoh has allowed him to supply them with great riches. So at this point, they're probably feeling pretty good. Like if he wanted to kill us, he wouldn't have given us all these wagons and all these donkeys. And all. So we're probably okay. Like look at the wagons. And as they're going away in verse 24, he says to them, uh, do not quarrel 